0: You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Eric Howell. Eric is a research assistant professor in neuroscience at Tufts University. And he is also um, quite a prolific um, essayist and short story writer. And his first novel has recently been published. It's an epic um, neuroscience-themed murder mystery um, it's a big stonking page turner of a novel and also extremely, I would say, vertiginously cerebral. Except that my boyfriend pointed out that if you have vertigo, it implies that you are standing at a at a great height looking down. So if I say that the um if I say that the it's vertiginous. That implies that I'm somehow on some plane above the book looking down at your puny efforts. Um, So I'm not sure what the opposite is, but it's dizzyingly, kaleidoscopically um, ambitious, and also very, very fun. It's an old-fashioned, it's also an old-fashioned whodunit, and a love letter to the city of New York. Um, And uh, so... um, did I did I say it's called the Revelations? I will put links to your other writing and to the novel and to anything else that we refer to in the course of this conversation in the show notes, so don't worry about that. And welcome, Eric.
1: Oh, it's absolutely lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me and uh, taking the time to to go through the book, and and I really appreciate the the kind words. I'm so glad.
0: Well, I I when you sent the book through the post and it arrived on my doorstep, and I opened it up, and my boyfriend said, oh, I was going to tell you to read that because I was really enjoying it.
1: <laughs> that is absolutely crazy, and, and I love hearing those sort of stories of serendipity. You know, when you put a book out in the world, it's such a private act writing a book, an incredibly private act, and almost a childish one in a certain sense, because you are imagining these characters for years. Uh, There's a technical term for this, which is paracosmic play, uh, where you build a fantasy world as a kid. Many, many people do it. And novelists are kind of just people who never stop doing paracosmic play. Uh, But then after, you know, eight years or so of living with the characters and you know, kind of constructing scenes around them. And then suddenly the book goes out in the world and then people are like talking about these imaginary characters who've occupied this imaginary world of yours. So it's suddenly like you've you've drawn in the rest of the world across your own personal bridge to Terabithia, uh, to some imaginary land. So it's always incredibly exciting and fun when that happens.
0: It took you ten years to write the novel. Um, it says on your website, and I'm not at all surprised because this is a very dense novel. Um, it had for me um, uh, very Pynchon-esque vibes and also very kind of Jonathan Franzen vibes. It has the feel of a novel that wants to be a, a, um, that wants to present a kind of epic view um, of life. Uh, in one sense, it's quite claustrophobic um, because the novel is set very largely in in apartments, in bars. Even the city is very claustrophobic. He is describing walking through the kind of canyons of the city um, with the skyscrapers up above. There's a feeling of being walled in and it's set during a very hot and humid summer. And also much of it takes place in dreams and imaginings and conversations. But at the same time, it has this extraordinary epic reach. And I think a lot of that is in the style of the prose. It's very densely elusive. It really ranges very widely through science and maths, the maths parts I mostly didn't understand, um, but it ranges widely through science and maths and ideas from literature. It's one of very, very few books, I think it's been years since this has happened to me, um, where I've had to look things up in the dictionary while reading, while reading a book in English. And I I think I must have, I must have looked up a couple of dozen words in the dictionary. And I don't mean technical terms from science or maths. I mean, um, you just have an extraordinarily rich and wide vocabulary and a very much wider active vocabulary than I think most people have. I just had this sense of um, this guy has like 40 more IQ points to play with than I do, <laughs> as he's writing this thing. Um, so it has that, that gives it this kind of very expansive feel. It's like from the tiny point, which is mostly Kierke, the protagonist's brain and his musings, um, you're connected out into the entire kind of world of human thought. So that was, wasn't a question, was it? It was sort of a speech.
1: <laughs> no, no, uh, I'll, but I'll respond. I mean, first of all, you know, uh, obviously, thank you. And when you when you hear something like that, uh, as a novelist, and again, it's something that you worked on in kind of in private. Um, and, you know, I'm not someone who, you know, has an MFA. I'm someone who, who grew up in an, in, in, a, in an independent bookstore. So I grew up selling books, and I grew up reading books. Um, and I knew I wanted to be a novelist. But all the books I liked were kind of wild, crazy things where the author would go out and do something and, you know, experience the world in some really deep fundamental way, like uh, mailer joining the army, you know, or, or Herman Melville, uh, running off and joining a whaling ship and getting stranded amid cannibals and typey or, uh, Joan Didion finding the counterculture. And, I knew I wouldn't really be able to do any of those things. But I realized that I was actually pretty good at science. And I was kind of thinking, you you know what, I would love to read. And I was thinking this even as a even as a kid, I mean, even as like a teenager, what I would have loved to have read was like a, a really serious literary fiction, but just set very deeply in the world of science. And I think when you do that, you know, you've been talking about the vocabulary and the atmosphere and the prose, you know, the one thing I didn't want to do was write a book where the science overwhelms the literary side of the text. I think in the end, you know, it's a novel. And that means that literature kind of has to get the last laugh. And what that required was writing in a very you know, intense, romantic way, one might even say, throughout the book. And a lot of that intensity is to combat the, 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 the science, to provide this counterpoint to it, because otherwise you can just let, you know, science is this, you know, big, it, it, science is a big creature wearing a capital, wearing a t-shirt that says capital T truth you know, and if you let it, it will kind of suck the air out of everything around it. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm not saying that th- I'm not saying like some sort of postmodernist thing about science not being true. I just mean that it is like a universal acid. And so I realized I would have to basically, when writing, keep my foot on the gas pedal, just clamp down the entire book.
0: How interesting. And it does have that feeling right from the very, very outset. I want to read the, the sort of first, um, just one paragraph. And then I'd like you to read a bit. But here's an example of, of what I mean. Um, it's just one paragraph. Actually, this isn't the first paragraph. It's the first paragraph, of the second chapter, which is called Tuesday. They're all titled... Uh, as days, which also gives it this kind of whodunity feel, what happened on what day at what time. Tuesday, Kirk wakes up from the first sleep he's been able to catch in the odyssey of cross-continental travel. Roused by the shudder of the bus over a pothole, shaken from his sleeping slouch against the window, Kirk's eyes blink open and the scene outside resolves into perception. Beyond the smudged glass is a busy sidewalk where people are fanning themselves with magazines, waiting for the walk signal, shielding their eyes as they exit the glare of glass doors, moving quickly carrying suitcases and purses and airs of motion. Dogs explore on leashes like searching filipodia as baseball caps are adjusted under lances of sun. There are vendors with coolers full of bottled water. People emerge from and disappear into the stark shadows the buildings cast like great sundials. The bus trundles along Manhattan's capillary-like streets, heading for the city's heart. Um, That's a very small but I think quite characteristic sample of the prose, and it tends to get more intense as um, as the paragraph continues and also as the chapter continues, there's a there's a, a a rhythm to the way that you use imagery. Um, it begins fairly. It begins well. It's never sparse, but it begins slight, somewhat sparser and then becomes denser and denser. The wealth of detail, the sort of sense of the city as one organism, with the dogs like its searching, uh, like its antennae, with its um, like its filopodia and um the streets being capillaries leading to its heart all of that is very characteristic of your of your approach i would say in the novel um but i'd like you to maybe um read a passage for for our listeners of your choice
1: yeah absolutely and i think i'm i'm so glad you picked that up because you know this is a novel you know it it yes it it's a murder mystery but it's also about consciousness and it's about the the current and ongoing search for a scientific theory of consciousness which we, which we don't have yet so it's kind of set in this world of looking around asking what what exactly is behind this f- you know phenomenon of our own experiences and what exactly is what exactly in the world is conscious I mean, and these are things that, yes, philosophers debate, but now scientists, you know, debate this. And one big, you know, possibility is that consciousness may belong to things that we kind of intuitively don't think of as having consciousness. And, you know, if you think about the way neuroscientists talk about the brain, they'll say, you know, consciousness comes from how complex the brain's neural activity is or something like that. And the question is, it's actually quite hard to come up with a definition of consciousness that New York City itself doesn't meet, right? So the brain is really complex. Well, New York City is really complex, right? You know, the, the brain has, uh, you know, neurons in it that are communicating. Okay, New York City has has people in it who are communicating, Uh, You know, you could even say the brain has higher order representations of itself. Okay, we'll go to the New York City Hall and find all the documents about New York, which are in New York. So, um, you know, even without talking about that too much, um, I wanted that to seep into the prose, wherein New York City in the novel almost has its own consciousness, and it's very kind of unclear, and so it's constantly being described in. Like mental ease, right? It's constantly being given kind of brain-like descriptions or mental-like descriptions, like the philipodia. Uh So just, just I, I had like completely forgotten about that paragraph. So I'm so glad that you like brought up such a such a simple thing, and then you know um, f- figured out from that that uh, that where this imagery was coming from. So I love that. Um, and I'm I'm gonna read a, just a brief part about uh, this. Why Kirk? So Kirk. Kirk, uh, both are acceptable pronunciations, um, why he is searching for a scientific theory of consciousness. And this is actually something that takes place back uh, in 2010. It's based on a real story, which was that there was these terrible uh, G8, G20 riots in Toronto. And Kirk is there to present a poster for the Scientific Association of Consciousness And he gets caught up in these riots and kind of spends the day basically protesting um, and and kind of, uh, you know, fighting with the cops, Uh, although he doesn't really have any political reasons for doing so. He's just there. And He's there with his friend Mike. And this is this all takes place now after uh, the the scene um, wherein he is finished with the riots. So he's now finished and Kirk is seated on his little brick wall overlooking the passing pedestrians, um, and he's looking at a cop. And so, the cop, a stocky man of about 40, with his hair so wet now with sweat and water it looked like he had been swimming, solemnly nodded to Kirk. And Kirk, seated on his little brick wall overlooking the passing of pedestrians, thought about what that man's day must have looked like, the soreness of his quads, what it must have felt like to have wet hair And a right shoulder on fire from swinging a baton, his visual field and his feelings toward the mess of a presumed protester sitting on a low brick wall across the street, sharing this moment with him. Considering these things, he was a still point in everything. It was all slowed. The water seemed to drip off the stocky cop's head in slow motion, and a car moved past like a slow thrumming beast. It was only a few minutes until Mike would return with hot dogs, and the news that he had decided to become a war correspondent instead of a scientist. But at that moment, Kirk, still dazed, brought his hand up to his ear and felt the sticky, aching spot that hummed when he touched it. Every sound was somehow both muted and loud, as if the streets had become an amphitheater. Unique, clear, real— And behind it all, there was the double thump sound of valves opening and liquid pumping through, and Kirk could not tell if it was his heartbeat or a portent of the world spirit, but he could feel the brick under him was a solid surface. His mind was a tuning fork still resonating. The air was a medium for prophecy. The glare of colors were bombing past him like schools of fish exploding in the setting sun at the exact origin of this. He felt he was a vision at the epicenter of history and knew that he would be the one to solve the mystery of consciousness.
0: Mm, thank you very much.
1: And that's kind of the beginning of his quest. I mean, and this is like about this is a mad quixotic, you know, quest. That that's what this is really about. And um, and, and and because solving consciousness is is incredibly difficult and that's from someone who, you know, does this in a sense professionally and I've done it professionally for for a long time now and and uh you know frankly it's 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 almost an impossible problem um and you know Kirk is kind of you know hell bent on throwing himself at it and figuring this out and it really comes from you know this this moment of empathy with with uh with a cop right with someone who he was just kind of you know as a young man kind of got caught up he was kind of happily you know running around and yelling about um just just an hour before
0: mm. yeah it's quite i was i was intrigued by the the fact that you yourself work in this field and your protagonist is such an iconoclast um and a cynic about the entire enterprise and i know that some of your work is is uh, meta theorizing on whether or not it's even possible to have a theory of consciousness, a falsifiable um, theory, rather than just a guess, you know, a conjecture. Um, And he, um, your protagonist is, is, at one point you talk about, you use the metaphor of Occam's broom, um, which is, I think, as one of the protagonists says, not the article of household furniture one normally associates with Occam. Um, uh, but the Occam's broom is the, the way in which people, um, brilliant people discreetly sweep under the carpet things that don't quite fit their theory. Um, things that might potentially, um, might potentially repudiate their theory and, Kirk is constantly lifting carpets and, bring, um, and exposing all those dust bunnies to the light.:
1: Neuroscience, broadly as a field, um, you know, I think it would surprise most people to learn, or at least many people, to learn, that neuroscience has no clue what the lawful relationship is between brain states and what you experience. So your experience is, you know, you have an ongoing stream of consciousness. And, you know, it's worth always taking one moment to just define consciousness uh, for these sorts of discussions, because there is a relatively well accepted definition now, um, wherein consciousness is just the what it is like to be you, right? So you wake up every day, you have a stream of consciousness, you've got you know, your own perceptions and experiences within that stream. And it's the thing that vanishes when you enter like a deep dreamless sleep, and then kind of boots up again, when you when you wake up in the morning. So it's not, I don't mean some very high level self referential sort of thing. I just mean, very simple experiences like hot and cold and pain and pleasure and so on. And, you know, we don't have any sort of lawful relationship within the field of neuroscience. For those uh, those entities, uh, and co- and you know, kind of why it, w- it would be that the brain in a particular state would generate this experience or not, we have a lot of correlations, some some quite nice correlations, but no lawful, no kind of lawful relationships, and that is a huge, massive gap within the. Traditional within the scientific understanding of the world, right like this is it's kind of like a dark matter or something. it's just this huge thing that people have not figured out yet and i think I think justifiably so, Kirk is quite mad that neuroscience really does not generally take this very seriously. It kind of thinks that it doesn't maybe need to solve this to proceed, and he's very much like a kunian. Like he he very much thinks there needs to be this massive paradigm shift where, you know, we have a scientific theory of consciousness and that's what he's after. Like that's what he's he's trying to get the whole novel and his mystery in trying to solve this, you know, ends up paralleling uh, this other mystery. Where Carmen, another scientist, is kind of drawn into trying to figure out why one of their fellow scientists died mysteriously. And so we we won't we won't spoil anything here. But this is kind of this is all like on the jacket copy of the book. So, uh, um, you know, and and, and so the, these twin mysteries, one of which is the um, you know, the 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 mystery of the murder, and one of which is the mystery of, of consciousness, kind of play off one another throughout the book.
0: Yeah, I'm going to read a little bit of the iconoclasm, which is um, so. Kurt, uh, sorry, Kierke um, is um, goes to see a professor who is who he needs to talk to to book uh, neuro to book scanner time for neuroimaging for fMRI neuroimaging. Presumably, you also have um, there's the fMRI and the other. Um I always forget what the actual name of that machine is where you have the electrodes on your head because
1: Oh, it's the electro electroencephalogram.
0: Yes, exactly. We always called it the hopeless hairdryer. Um when <laughs> I, I was married to a neuroscientist True. and um we called it the hopeless hairdryer so much that I forgot I've forgotten its official name. To me it's just the hopeless hairdryer. Because it does look a bit like one of those old-fashioned hairdryers. But there tends to be condensation, so it actually wets your hair. So it's hopeless as a hairdryer. (laughs) It's a hair wetter.
1: Exactly. You you come out of those things looking very funny.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is, uh, uh, um, he's gone to talk to this um, uh, professor about, supposedly about neuroimaging scanner time. And this is a Nobel Prize winner in the field who he is talking to. Professor Norman Bennett watches the verbose young man in front of him pick his nails down to the quick as he talks. A rolling expanse of words, a prolix assault that Norman can't quite make sense of. They're supposed to be having a meeting about scheduling participants for neuroimaging runs. Norman has surreptitiously checked his calendar twice to make sure. But instead, Kirk is talking about subtle biases in the setup of neuroimaging experiments. And something about tracing causation in reentrant ca- chaotic systems is a mathematical impossibility. Indeed, he is still blathering on. I mean, it's basically a convenient happenstance that hemoglobin responds differently to magnetic fields based on whether it's bound to oxygen. Sure, neurons in a particular brain region might increase their energy-hungry firing, and therefore the vascular system initiates a hemodynamic response, bringing more blood to the area with increased glucose need, in theory. So yes, presumably this hemodynamic response increases and decreases with neuronal firing, but we all know how sluggish it is. The The blood takes two seconds to rush to the aid of neurons in need, and oh, hey, it's variable in its intensity and timing, meaning that fMRI has a temporal resolution that's like averaging a symphony into an, into a single note. The girl Jessica, sitting next to Kirk, is nodding and looking more and more convinced. Norman holds up a hand. Uh, thank you, Kirk, but just so I know, as a Crick scholar, are you planning on actually doing any neuroimaging while you're here at the centre? Honestly, no. Okay, well, let's focus on that, not on the effectiveness of neuroimaging as such. Hmm. I have a f- meeting in a few minutes. Norman lies. He stands up behind his door and begins to move behind his desk and begins to move towards his office door. A trick he has found, which causes people to begin automatically retreating. Kirk and Jessica are ushered out, thanking him for this time. As the two of them recede down the hall, he hears them mention Bennett and Nobel, and smiles as he closes his office door, goes and sits behind his desk. He leans back in his chair, reliving in his mind the handshake with the King of Sweden, that red carpet, redder than anything he'd ever seen, the flushed pride of his wife. Yes, her pride. His research on functional magnetic resonance imaging the first real leader in the field, led to him sharing the prize in physiology with two colleagues. So it's a lovely sort of illustration of how Kierk continually cuts through the crap, that there's this kind of whole apparatus there in place, um, which is funding them to um, do research on measuring the things that can be measured, like a kind of 2% increase in blood flow to a certain part of the brain which um which shows up in the scanner which you can see in the scanner because water has uh magnetic polarity um and blood is mostly water and that is um it's very much like the um that old joke about the guy searching for his keys under the under the light from the lamppost because that's the only place where he can see but that doesn't mean that he's likely to have dropped them there
1: <laughs> i think i think a- absolutely right um you know it, it, kirk is kirk is very much an intellectual gadfly right so he he is a classic Diogenes-esque character i mean he even starts the novel as essentially homeless um and you know i do you know the 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 downside to that sort of behavior is that kirk can can come across as very arrogant he can be very arrogant he can be very kind of sure of himself he's very quick to dismiss others but you know when when the entire kind of academic and intellectual apparatus leans one way uh then i think someone like him necessarily becomes incredibly contrarian and there really isn't that much of a space within contemporary science or academia for those voices, you know, like, like Kirk has a very tough time, just within academia itself, he, he's almost always getting into trouble. He is, uh, you know, he, he's risk taking, he can be aggressive. Um, and all those sorts of things are, are, you know, in many cases, it's good that they're no longer accepted in academia. But you can also lose some of that knife that cuts against complacency. So, you know, we, you know, he, he is a huge critic of contemporary neuroscience, but he's also someone who thinks that there is a, a, a very obvious and significant path forward, which is finding this scientific theory. And he knows that if he can only find this theory right he he he'll kind of be vindicated and be justified in his criticisms so uh, you know he he's very much driven in this way to to figure this out you know often often to his own detriment but um that technique of getting someone out of your office is something that a <laughs> uh, a professor once once told me right which is that you just you just kind of stand up and, uh, and then you start just walking towards the door and people will kind of just retreat you know, retreat back and in, into the hallway. um, And this was a professor who told me that uh, about another student after, and then I realized that he had done it to me multiple times. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that uh, you know, I, uh, you know, um, I, you know, yes, this is fiction, right? So everything has been put through the meat grinder of fiction, but I think it is a very realistic depiction of contemporary scientific research, right? And I had, had just, not really seen that done uh, in a novel, or I hadn't seen it done in the way that I wanted to do it.
0: Well, I definitely have. um, I mean, I've spoken about this on multiple occasions, so I'll try to not go off on a huge, uh, or one of my huge rants about this, but um, I'm very conscious in academia of how much is just status games. Um, Certainly in um, my own, when I was an academic myself in English literature. This is not to say that there aren't, of course, people doing good work out there, but so much of it was, for example, for us, writing articles and trying to get articles published in obs- obscure journals, and the articles that were written in this absolutely migraine-inducing um, academies that nobody enjoys writing or reading, and which, which was often incomprehensible even to other experts in the field, including, I think, the person, who, people who write it, and which we knew would only be... Its purpose was, first of all, to put a line on our own CVs to make us more... To give us more professional clout, secondly, as something that the university could present to the government as part of the RAE, the research assessment exercise. oh look, we produced quote unquote twenty articles in the English department this month. Um, and it was also um, it also was became something that other academics could then cite in the literature review sections. Of their own papers, to show that they had done due diligence in researching the subject, and it was just that whole kind of cycle was so utterly dispiriting to me, and i I had yeah. some sense of the scientific equivalent of that happening in some of the passages in this uh, in your book
1: yeah a- a- absolutely i mean I-, I think that that is a spot on critique of contemporary academia, and I think even in the novel. And it certainly is true in the sciences. And even in the novel, uh, Kirk at some point refers to uh, it as the science game, mm. where you know it's, science is very much like you find a dial, and that dial is some way to generate papers, and it might be like an fMRI machine. And then you turn the dial like a little bit, right? So you, you put people in the fMRI machine for like a little bit of a different task. And then you um and then you kind of repeat the process over and over again, and what you know scientists want is these repeatable tiles that they can use, and you know Kirk just does not want to play the science game; he wants to like do science and and i I think that sometimes people can get really skeptical and kind of think that you know there's only the science game, and it's like no like there there are like you know like, like Einstein's Anna Mirabilis, like there are like, uh, you know, the theory of general relativity is not the science game, right? It's, it's real capital S science, but a lot of what goes on in academia is the science game. And Kirk kind of is just refusing to play. And frankly, it doesn't, it does it's not working out well for him, right? Like, like at all. And I think that that's a very reasonable depiction of what happens if you if you refuse? Because frankly, the people who, the, the 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 people who succeed are often the ones who are just playing the science game, and you know you can get into how much of a problem that is. In a sense, producing more neuroimaging papers that aren't really replicable doesn't hurt anyone, you know, significantly. It kind of decreases the signal to noise ratio, but uh, you know, what what Kirk is, is after is 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 kind of understanding how you know, nature itself works, like understanding what are the relationships between, you know, these puffings of chemicals between cells and experiences. And there is some answer to that. And presumably, and, uh, and, and it would be, you know, incredible to know it. I mean, I, I think at some point, he even says something like, the best kind of neuroscience is the kind that lets you stop doing neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Like after you have a the theory of consciousness, neuroscience actually becomes somewhat less interesting uh, because, you know, the, the, you know, it's a big complicated system. There's all sorts of stuff going on in it, of course. But once you have the lawful relationships about how experiences are related to brain states, you're, you're basically done. Like, like th- there is of course still science to do, but it's very kind of post paradigmatic color in the lines stuff and kirk is almost like uninterested in it right you'd be like oh well if i if i come up with a theory of consciousness i can kind of i can just rest i can just rest easy um and again that's not something that you see very much in academia uh anymore and and again that ca- that can have downsides like kirk is kirk is not meant to be an 100 percent sympathetic character Right, he he's he's meant to occasionally be abrasive and kind of, you know, think think highly of himself because he kind of sees this truth, but I I am I am sympathetic to his his views about contemporary neuroscience for sure.
0: There's also, I mean, it's really the correlates, the neural correlates think. So everything in neuro in neuroscience as some people may as listeners may or may not know is the neural correlates of x and the neural correlates of y and there is this just really mysterious and unanswerable sort of gap which is why are these things correlated what does what would it even i mean if we had if the correlations are even firmly replicable what do they mean so for example um at my ex-husband's lab, they did a study on the neural correlates of hate. Um, at first, it at, at first, it was wasn't clear whether it was going to pass the ethics committee approval. Some people objected because they felt this study <laughs> em- encouraged people to hate. And they might leave the study hating more than they had <laughs> come into the study. Um, but it was approved and and they did this study. um, and um basically, if you see, uh, images of um, of people you hate, then there is increased blood flow to the amygdala, a very small amount, like there's two percent greater blood flow going on there, and you can see that in the fMRI machine. But what does that mean? Like, I mean, how um, how can how can sort of axons and dendrites and um, Chemical reactions and, um, electrical reactions and an increase in blood flow add up to hate. I mean, those are, they're like two completely, um, separate realms of just under, un, uh, of categ- They're just two completely different categories of things. There's some, there's something very, It's like a there's a sort of unbridgeable gap there, at least from my layperson's perspective.
1: Yeah, there's there's a part of um, the novel wherein Carmen uh, is reading these old letters, which which really do exist, and they're the correspondence between. uh, Let me see if I get this right. Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia (laughs) um, and Descartes, and this princess and the philosopher were corresponding and princess elizabeth was actually brilliant i mean she, she's just a, a brilliant thinker and you can tell from her from her letters and she had a massive correspondence you know with many other figures uh similar kind of intellectual figures of the age and uh she and descartes had this this wonderful long-running correspondence he was he was much older than her like in his 50s and i think she was in her 20s at the time and you can tell from the letters which are all about intellectual subjects and all about the mind-body problem, all about how mind relates to body, um, uh, they're, they're, they're really intellectual love letters. Um, they're, they're incredibly kind of saucy and romantic. And it's very obvious that the two have feelings for one another. And in fact, when Descartes dies, even though they've only seen each other a couple times in their whole life, Princess Elizabeth says, you know, I've lost my best friend in the world. And she actually, she never marries. Um, although she does some amazing things, I think later in life, like running orphanages and stuff like that. Um, and one of the criticisms that she gives back to, to Descartes, uh, who famously is like, you know, there's basically this, you know, mind substance and it's interacting with body substance in the pineal gland. Uh, you know, her, she, she is, I think it's known to be the first historical record of in her letters, being like, kind of pushing Descartes and being like, how precisely do these two things interact? Like, if these two things are really separate substances, then how could they how could they interact? Like how does that make any sense? How could you interact with something? It's like a ghost interacting with the material world. Like, how could that really happen without the ghost being kind of material, in a sense, or the world being kind of ghostly? And Descartes, you know and now this is kind of very well accepted as you know the classic answer to what's called in contemporary analytic boring lingo uh you know the you know interactive dualism um and Descartes just is never able to offer up a kind of a satisfactory answer to this princess's you know probe uh and very like precise and and good and good reply and uh, you know there's the deep sense in which we you know this this debate between this princess and the philosopher is still the thing that needs to be resolved in contemporary neuroscience and uh it certainly has has not yet been resolved i mean we'll see if 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 it as if it ever gets resolved but you know one of the things i wanted to do in the novel is put people in the same epistemological position that we consciousness researchers have been forced to live in for years, which is one of kind of confusion and doubt. Um, and, you know, even just in the other circumstances of the novel, you know, there's this group of, of, uh, young scientists and one of them dies kind of mysteriously. And, uh, Carmen, the scientist is, is convinced that it's, it's a murder of some kind. Um, you know, even in that, uh, she's convinced it's a murder, but not everyone is. And that reflects the fact that there are some people who are like, you know, there's there's no mystery at all here. There's nothing that even needs to be solved. So uh, you know, the the kind of the the confusion and the atmospheric um uh kind of epistemological difficulties inherent to talking about these issues is, you know, hopefully baked into the the text itself.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. One other thing that is very, um, uh, one of the other things that is uh, is prominent in the book, um, there are a number of things that are quite prominent in the book that I actually don't want to go into because it will create too many spoilers. And this <laughs> is a murder mystery. So I don't want to, I'm, I'm very conscious of not giving a lot of spoilers. Thank you. Um, but one thing that is, that uh, one device that you use repeatedly in the book is um, Kierke's dreams. Very often uh, chapters begin with Kierke waking up. Um, And so it's about, um, those chapters are kind of liminal explorations or explorations of liminal consciousness states. And I would like to read one So Kirk is sleeping at this point.
1: And he just visited the zoo as well. He's
0: just visited the zoo. Yes, he's just visited the zoo. Um, Actually, I'll start from the paragraph before. So I'll start at the beginning of this little section. Kirk gets back to his apartment after the zoo, his mind full of lions and chimpanzees and the bat exhibit and the bar where he and Alex and Carmen had drunk pitcher after pitcher of beer. He fumbles with his key. And then the door is open, and where the hell is the light switch? And the only visibility is from the city, coming in like a machinery of light through the window. And then in the bathroom he turns the faucet on full blast and rapidly cups water into his hands to drink. Again, again, the roar of the sink and the hot, hot, hot water, the water burning up his throat. And he's just standing there, leaning over the sink and wildly drinking hot water for a good minute before he violently and drunkenly hits the sink off and strips off his shirt over his head on the way to the bedroom and then slams into the pillow and sleeps. At first, there is nothing. But then, later, a body, a place, distinct spatial relations. The body is huddled and curled and slept in the folding of itself upside down, an upside-down world around it. And it is dark and warm here, amid the mules of the young and soft ticking motions of all the bodies around. The small crevice from which I hang fold, still, still as the rock and the cave, as within the belly is no longer full of movements ended, things caught, no longer full of catching of chasing of eating, the black shadow of anticipation to fall on the moving tastes of crunches, keeping nose from the cold. Tucking it under the arch of leathery wings which belong. Long fingers which belong. Warm but empty belly which belongs. lets long fingers curl hard and naturally and instinctively. Thoughts of hunting, yes, amid the black here. The black and calm of waiting. Seeing the small twongs of sound bounce around and give the world. Yes, it is safe, safe. Cousins, brothers, sisters, yes the other black bodies as soft as underbellies of night, rubbing, an expanse of skin, a thousand skins, which all belong, all love and strife. The true world is here, in the cousins which belong, the brothers which belong, the sisters which belong, the world inside which belongs, while the world outside is a great loft of flyings and huntings and smellings. And here is the home of the all, the home, the cave. And now the great belonging is moving, is rising, rising now, touchings of skeins of leather. Yes, now it is time to hunt, to find the night, to be amid the tall in the open and find, find, find the little wells, little treasures of food, food, food. Cousins around, yes, the smell of flying, the quick beats of hearts, twongs. Here all movement, here. Spilling out into the outside, all of the, all the escape of the cave, the mouth, the dark, the home, emerge into the open, all of us, to spread, to cry, to mark, to move, to hunt, to feed. Yes, yes, to be bat, 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 bat.
1: Oh my gosh, Iona, what a lovely reading of that passage.
0: Oh, thank you. (laughs) You did
1: such a good job. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's a... Wonderful.
0: So it's so beautiful and um, rich and atmospheric, that passage. And it's also so funny. Um, I mean, it, it. I think it didn't draw, dawn on me until very late on in the passage, until at least halfway through in that first reading, um, that it's a reference to that. Um, who is the author again? The what is it like uh, to be Nagle. a bat? The Nagel. The Nagel, the top. Nagel. Nagle. what it is like yes. to be a bat. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs>
1: And and yeah, precisely. And you know, and and you know, here's here's Kirk dreaming of precisely what it is like to be a bat. And I, I would say that you know, this is the advantage of literature. I will be honest; you cannot do that scene in a TV show or a film, and you you cannot get inside the consciousness of something else. You know, the the huge, ad- I've written about this before, which is that the unique advantage of literature, and this is something I harp on and yet rarely see, maybe even really never see others talk about. I'd, I'd love to see some other examples, which is that literature, you know, provides this really unique access to consciousness, even to, you know, a, a bat's consciousness where you're, you're experiencing trying to express here what it is like to be that creature. And I really just don't think you could, you could translate that scene into, into film. Um, And that kind of proves that there are unique powers to something like a novel that is really not shared by other, other media. Now other media have their own abilities, but in novels, I think this access to consciousness is unique. And so to me, you know, writing, a, a book about science, um, you know, it was really important to showcase that literature itself is a window onto consciousness. You know, all these characters are kind of trying to figure this out, um, you know, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how do we use science to see inside another's consciousness? And in a sense, it's funny because it's like, well, here's here's an answer, right? It's like, it's a, it's a novel. That That's what novels do. They allow you to see inside the, the consciousness of others.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean I think that I I feel that way. Uh for example, when I see a, a Jane Austen novel um televised or dramatized, um, although it's very in I, I personally find it very enjoyable, um, but what you have is only the kind of surface thing of what happens and what the literal dialogue is. Whereas uh, the charm of Jane Austen comes from her for me very largely from her use of um, indirect free thought where you think you think that you are reading neutral things written in the narrator's voice and then suddenly you realize ah no that these are the thoughts of one of the characters that the narration kind of slips between different characters and we see that happening even at the very beginning of um, that famous sentence at the very beginning of Pride and Prejudice. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And um, when you're, as the kind of naive reader or reading Austen for the first time, your feeling is, oh, this is Austen's voice. This is her kind of prim sort of judgment of this, or um, this is the kind of general voice of gos of gossip, or this is her assessment of um how people thought at the time. And it's only later that you realize that it was Mrs it's Mrs. Bennett who's speaking at that moment. Um, yeah,
1: ab- absolutely. Or it's even or it's even Austin making fun of Mrs. Bennett's kind of ideas, right? Like it's it's all kind of combined there. Um and that's something that people don't quite understand about like Austin, particularly contemporary, which is that she's just supposed to be so funny and she is so funny and she skewers people and she skewers, you know, mainly women. I mean, it's, it's a very funny book. That's, that's, you know, of kind of the one kind of uh, maybe more, more modern or contemporary Maybe that's not quite right. Uh, a woman of a huge family who's kind of making fun of all her sisters and mothers like the whole time. But but I agree that you know I I love adaptations. I love you know watching movies. I love television. But you know the way I've put it is that when you're when you have a when you have a novel, the the magic thing about a novel is that thoughts are as directly referable. Uh, and that you can directly reference thoughts in the same way you can directly reference physical objects. So you can be like, you know, there's a chair in the room. You can also say there's jealousy in the room. Both are totally valid sentences for a, a novelist to write. And yet if you tried to do there's jealousy in the room, just think about what you would have to do to show that in like a TV show. Right? you would have to have the character you know beat their chest or tear at their hair or say some snide remark like you, you they they would have to express it and they would have to express it probably in a relatively ham fisted way and um th- the the fact that you know novels have you know first of all there's still a great readership for novels, so uh this is a It's still true that there are people who read novels. There are people who are willing to pick up a new novel, and and that's amazing. So it's not that the novel has completely lost its cultural force. But I don't think that there's any question that it's not as powerful of and and doesn't occupy as much of the cultural space as it did 50 years ago. Like I, I don't. There are very few people who would argue that, and I do think that 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 is not just arbitrary, like we are losing something, which is this intrinsic perspective onto others consciousness. And, you know, so, so to me, you know, a big part of this book is kind of trying to draw attention to the fact that literature is, is able to do these things. And it's even able to do things like peer into the heads of others that science still can't do, right? So, not only can you do stuff that films can't do, you can still do stuff that science can't even do, mm, uh, which mm. is which is pretty amazing for this old technology, you know, that people used to carve into stones, right?
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, lowering the tone considerably for a moment, um, I was um, thinking about this in relation to the series Big Bang Theory, which is kind of one of my guilty pleasures. Um, when i have a spare 20 minutes i go watch an episode and dive back into that world um and um it's when you're watching a character i mean i i don't know have you seen big bang theory do you know what i'm talking about
1: i i have not but i kind of know of it like i've mm. seen youtube clips or something Yeah, right? so I, I i know like what the plot yeah. would be probably
0: i mean there's a terribly uh, there's a um there's a terribly gauche and also rather creepy character in it called howard and um it's he is always just saying the most the most kind of misogynistic and horrible things and it's it's extremely crass but my feeling is that the um the oh, it's the seeing just how kind of poorly all of uh, all of Howard's kind of crass attempts to, um, seduce women, how poorly they go down, like a kind of bucket of cold sick, mostly, um, gives you a, a, gives you a kind of insight if you're an empathetic person into oh, what it must be like to be Howard, uh, to be, um, so he's totally dominated by his mother. He's kind of a loser in every regard. He's very physically unattractive. Um, and he's a total, he's a nerd to the point of, at which it is disabling rather than, uh, rather than, rather than an, an asset. Um, and the only way that a sh- the show can do that is through this, through this kind of cringy dialogue um whereas if it were a novel it would have a com- there would be a completely different it would have a completely different valence um your feelings would be much much more um subtle and it would be it would be just much e- easier to enter the howard world so i i'm quite forgiving of the show because i feel the a lot of the the kind of crudeness of it is absolutely an artifact of the the genre that it's um uh, the genre that it's in
1: yeah i mean i i completely agree i mean i have this whole i have an essay called fiction in the age of screens if anyone wants to check it out from a couple of years ago that are all about these these issues and and what sort of unique powers that media provide but um you know, if you look at contemporary, what's called new golden age TV shows, you know, shows that are very critically acclaimed and that are incredibly literary in their sensibility. So things like The Sopranos, Mad Men, The Wire are are kind of classic examples of this, but I would also, you know, put in like the first season of True Detective and these other, and there's plenty of other ones as well. Um, Even Mm, I think- Six
0: Feet Under.
1: Six Feet Under, great show. Uh, Definitely in there. Um, And so all those shows have, maybe not, not, not as much The Wire, but uh, all those shows generally, I think, want to be novels. And you can tell they want to be novels because they generally have some you know kind of gimmicky way to try to get into the heads of their characters. So why is The Sopranos, why is there so much therapy in The Sopranos? Because it wants to be a novel, because it's trying to get access to Tony Soprano's head. And it can't do that. It's in the same epistemological position that you are in when you talk to somebody else in real life, which is that their consciousness is encased in bone and you cannot access it. And so you have to guess and infer in pretty ham-fisted ways what's actually going on. But, you know, they, they kind of try to get around that by having Tony sit on the couch and talk about his past and all these things. And the, and many shows are kind of structured like that. Once you start noticing this, it, you you realize it crops up, uh, in, in many, many shows where people have these relatively unrealistic conversations. I mean, even in mad men, Betty Draper starts off in therapy. Why? Cause it's a great way to get insight into her internal world. And you can't do that as well in a TV show. And frankly, that, ability even when it's done as best as it is like all those shows are amazing and have really brilliant writers but they will never be able to get the access to another's consciousness that novels do so i'm a huge proponent of people you know you don't need to be the biggest reader in the world right but i really think that people should uh give novels a go at least several times a year because you You, you that are the artistic experience that they can provide is not replicable by other media. So you really are objectively losing something when you when you don't read them at least again sometimes. Um, And Mm. this is honestly uh, the biggest problem here is men. If if you look at rates of reading, men are not reading like they used to, uh, and they've. Been playing video games and they've been you know watching TV and again there's nothing wrong with those mediums. I actually think video games and TV can both be art with a capital A, but you do lose something really significant. Um, And so you know one thing I've kind of been you know kind of campaigning a little bit for is just just to get some more people reading in that sense. Mm,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also there's also a, a more kind of there's a sense in which it, you make it more more your own also because you are doing a, a doing more of the imaginative work um, in the novel, um, and sometimes that is true even of the kind of access to the consciousness. So, I mean, the novelist can give you a very strong sense of access to a person's consciousness and in a much more subtle, nuanced, and complex and detailed way than than um, visual media can, without it necessarily being a kind of omniscient narration of what's in the person's head. So I'm thinking about one of my favorite novels, this really extraordinary, gargantuan novel called um, Clarissa by Samuel Richardson. Have you read it?
1: I have not, but I know of it.
0: It's, it's an epistolary novel um, and it's entirely, the entire story is told in letters and they're not letters between the two protagonists, but the, they are the female protagonist, Clarissa, writing to her best friend and the male protagonist, Lovelace writing to his best friend. So it's her account of events and they're writing about, they're very quickly writing about the same series of events. And what you have is Clarissa's account of what happened and what it meant as she presents it to her best friend, and Lovelace's account of what happened and what it meant as he presents it to his best friend. And I, I don't, I mean, it's impossible to take either either account as honest this is not a diary it's not an outpouring in a letter you i think as clarissa says you put your best self forward so it's the it's their 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 kind of best self representation um and uh, but the the feeling you have the intensity with which you come to know those characters is really quite extraordinary i think no other novel has delved quite as deep um, as that one. And it's it's entirely through what their own words and the way that they choose to represent themselves say about them. And that's something that would be impossible to do in film.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that structure also allows you to kind of dig through the different levels of appearance and what people say versus what they do. You know, I think Clarissa inspired things like the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, where there's, you know, a, a similar effect going on, except if, of course, it's a devil reporting to a higher devil about his attempts to corrupt this, this guy. Right. And each time you realize that the, the, the lower demon is like not doing, he keeps thinking that he's doing a really good job of corrupting this guy, but this guy's like inching closer to being a good Christian and marrying, and like doing all this good stuff. And, uh, and, uh, at least at, according to the times. And, uh, you know, you realize this, this lower demon is just like fooling himself completely, right. Uh, w- within these letters. And, and again, I think that there's just this domain and this domain is, 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 is kind of your stream of consciousness. And that domain is extremely difficult to access in, in other ways. So, um, and, and I think that that's worth keeping in mind, you know, we live in an age where in media, has become incredibly easy to consume um i i have an essay where i talk about this called enter the super sensorium and uh that term super sensorium um i, I mean it in the sense of that we now basically have a supermart for experiences which is our screen and it's very very easy to consume almost any experience you want through the through the screen and it is a it is a it is a big deal. Like I, I think many, many people spend far more time than they're even willing to admit to others on consuming voraciously this, this, this media. And I think that it can be dangerous without talking about, um, you know, for example, the different powers of media, like if you only ever consume video games, like, first of all, it's great to occasionally consume a video game because guess what you can do with a video game that you can't do with a novel agency. So if you want Mm. to tell a story that involves agency, like agency of the person who's going to be consuming the story. Yeah. You can, you know, you can always kind of ape another media inside another media. So you can do like a choose your own adventure novel, but we all know that like a choose your own adventure novel is never kind of going to work as well as like a really great role playing game, like you know, no. Planescape Torment or Disco Elysium or these other games that have really kind of defined the genre.
0: And generally, I hate choose your own adventure novels. Um, I find them extremely unsatisfying. Um, I mean, if if you can pick what happens, then it ceases to have meaning. Um, it's like you know when um, it 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 sort of reminds me of when um, in. TV shows they uh, they kill off the character and then the character somehow comes back to life, and I feel utterly cheated. Like, well, if you're going if you're going to do something, you need to be serious about it. Otherwise, i I don't feel like emotionally investing at all. Yeah. And if I can decide how the chapter ends, why should I care how the chapter ends?
1: P- Precisely, but but yet. Within a video game, due to the save function and the ability to, you know, have so many choices that it's like not worth kind of going back and reloading from a really early stage and having to go through like, there's so many reasons you can't flip through a video game really in the way that you you can with a choose your own adventure. So this subtle difference between media really allows RPGs to do some things that novels can't, but novels can do plenty of things that video games can't. And so it's just worth, you know, I think everyone should kind of keep in mind in terms of their own habits of consumption in this, you know, 21st century where we have these amazing technologies that make consuming entertainment and fictions in general very easy. You know, people should keep in mind that there are still things you can, you can get from a novel and there are also, uh, and there's also very good reasons to kind of have as diverse aesthetic standards as you can and to have high aesthetic standards because if you don't have high aesthetic standards you will kind of just be swamped down by this you know kind of endless endless stream of entertainment that you can kind of dip in at at any point and it does make our age very different from previous ages that that did not exist even even 20 years ago it didn't really exist Mm,
0: mm. the feeling of i mean i am very i am Very enamoured of the feeling of kind of the the feeling that you can get from a a um, a TV series that you can't quite get from books in the same way as being able to rewatch episodes and dip back into the world, into that kind of the universe. And I think the closest the closest experience to that in books that people have had recently is the Harry Potter novels. Um, and that's one of the reasons why everybody was reading them so voraciously at one stage was, I can't remember how long ago, maybe 15 years ago, I was, um, sitting outside eating lunch in the park and every single person was reading Harry Potter. (laughs) And it was nice that they were reading. I mean, it would be, I hope that Harry Potter for some of them at least was a gateway drug, um, but it was the first time I'd ever—I'd never seen so many people reading novels before.
1: Growing up, you know, as I, as I said, I grew up in this independent bookstore, uh, which is called the the Jabulaki. It's it's north of Boston. If, if anyone's in in the United States, and um, you know, I it, think
0: there are some people in the United States.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, and um, you know it growing up growing up in a bookstore and then i I was i was actually directly harry potter's age each time the books came out and we would have a midnight party and again this people forget this how insanely big these books were where we would have a midnight party and believe me bookstores do not have midnight releases you know it's not the new xbox for, for most novels where people line up we would have people line up and take tickets and I'd be running around you know when I was 12 or 13 and my mother would recruit all my friends at the time and we would you know have get carry these store these secret boxes of Harry Potter books in the back so that no one could get them and you know eventually we would basically be just throwing them out into the crowd as people would scramble for them at you know 1 in the morning and it made me really believe at the time that that novels were like the center of the culture um and probably a bit naively in a certain sense um which as i said i do think that the the power of the novel has been decreasing i don't think that the the academization of literature in terms of Nowadays every writer, you know, if you want to know the big difference between contemporary novels and novels even 15 20 years ago, it's that every writer you're reading now has an MFA. So they all went through the academy. They all paid, you know, 100,000 to 200,000 and took 2 years off and they all go through this very similar, you know, structural program. Um and I do think that that has created a lot of um has created kind of an insular writing world um and but but at the time you know it really felt like just this huge possibility for this immense excitement
0: Mm. so you you didn't have an mfa and you feel that it has um did you tell me that you feel that it has disadvantaged you not in terms of your uh clearly of your mastery of the craft but more in terms of how your novel has been received by the literary establishment as opposed to by the general reader
1: yeah i've i've noticed this really significant disconnect and i think a big reason for this is again this this shift so so i don't have an mfa and honestly it is extremely difficult to name a millennial writer who is publishing work like nationwide who does not have an mfa it is there, there was a big debate when when this huge change happened, which is everyone started getting MFAs in the '90s and early 2000s, and the MFA side of the debate so soundly won that there's not even a debate about it in the industry anymore. Like every writer gets their MFA, which means they all spend time, you know, in the academy, um, and they all spend time in writing workshops, and you know, the thing about writing workshops is that you're just getting criticized left and right. You know, you you go in there and your main goal is going to be to try to avoid criticism. And I think the result has been these really, has been really sapping the vitality out of literature due to this acronymization. And, you know, for me, um, you know, this was a book, The Revelations, it came out last month. You know, it, it, it was published nationwide. Barnes and Nobles bought three copies for every store in the United States, right? So on the seller side, on the bookstore seller side, people were very excited. Uh, But when it actually came out, and this isn't true anymore, but normally when books come out, they get reviews in, you know, the, the, the 200 or so uh you know outlets that do reviews like the LA review of books or the New York review of books or even you know and there's plenty of like lesser outlets like shelf awareness and all these places that are great but you know that just review books that's their job and i didn't get one review i, I got one review which was in publishers weekly actually so that's not quite true but they got the plot wrong they just they just described the book and it's like a totally different book they said it's about mind control like a darpa program for mind control
0: uh, so, you know, they
1: just, they didn't read it. And, um, you know, I was kind of talking to, you know, the people I know in the industry, my agents and editors, and they're like, you know, it's really tough for to get anyone in the industry to take someone seriously who doesn't have an MFA anymore. And so, you know, and, and again, since then, people have been reading it and, and, and reviews have kind of come in from a from you know, diverse outlets. And so, you know, it's, it's it's gotten a lot better since that initial launch. But it was very unlike, you know, if you kind of plotted on the x-axis national distribution and on the y-axis, you know, initial reviews by, you know, literary outlets, my book would be like the farthest on the x-axis and like the lowest on the y-axis that you could possibly get. And I think, you know, one just really big reason is people didn't even know what to do with it. You know, they're so used to kind of these MFA novels, which are, in, in my view, and again, this isn't true. There are some really great working writers. So let me just preface everything I'm saying here in terms of generalizations, uh, but they are very self-similar now because everyone's been through this. You know, has to kind of get through this eye of the needle, this MFA program, and it just creates this this insularness to to contemporary fiction. And um, and I think it's a really big problem. I mean, if you if you go and you try to get published, even if even if you're the best writer in the world right now and you are living in Wisconsin and you don't know anyone in New York uh, and you don't have an MFA, there is absolutely no way to get published. Like, let me be really clear. Your chance of being published is zero at that point. And it doesn't matter how good you are. And so I, and the industry really does not talk about this. It does not talk about the rise of MFA's and, and so on um, to any real serious degree. So, but, but but since then, I've been very happy with the results. You know, I get emails from readers now all the time who kind of find the book um, and tell their friends about it. And, you know, as I said, there have been some great outlets who've, 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 who have ended up reviewing it. But seeing that response made me think, this is this is a really pretty serious problem.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I will get on to our book reviewer, Daniel Sharp, and get him to review it for Ario. Um I gather you sent him a copy, which was yes very well nice
1: I, of you. yeah the 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 u k publicists like um in in the u k uh because it just came out in the u k on May thirteenth so it just came out a week ago uh, Congratulations. where you are. yeah no it's 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 lovely it's um uh, I'm super excited so now it's both in the u s and the u k and there's an audio edition plan, so there's all sorts of you know future stuff that I'm extremely happy about uh with the novel and again Frankly, one can never complain about being published because it's been an absolutely amazing experience. But it was very indicative of of me of what I thought about the industry. Where I thought, you know, I think that if 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 there hadn't been this rise of the MFAs, um, I think there might have been a different response.
0: I'd like to read another passage from the novel.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Just because we've been talking a great deal about the kinds of things that the novel can do. So I think we need to show a little, uh, let's tell, more show. <laughs> Love it. Um, and yeah, so this is um, Carmen and uh, this is from, uh, Carmen and Kirk. Um, I think they are having sex at this point. Um, <laughs> All right. So, um, and we're in Carmen's head at this point, at this moment. Oh no, Kirk has has left. Kirk has just left after sex. After a quick goodbye kiss, Kirk disappears out the door, and she hears his descent down the stairs. At first she laughs, but then it turns into a frown. Her phone buzzes. Alex has te- texted her. How'd things go last night? And has also sent her a bunch of kissy emojis. Carmen sends him back an emoji of a thumbs-up and some fireworks and an eggplant, followed by a string of question marks. There's still a lingering contact high from Kirk. Maybe it's the nicotine. Or maybe, Carmen thinks, she can blame evolution for making humans pair-bonding, mostly monogamous primates. After all, there's Kirk's intellect, showing an ability to plot on behalf of his genetic material, his broad shoulders, capable of brutish brawling with other male humans for dominance. His long legs and lack of adipose tissue, good for hunting, tracking, warfare. His combination of aggression and empathy, willing to commit violence to to protect the genetic material he cherishes. And he makes her laugh, sexual market value. Of course, she knows it goes both ways, Her intellect also demonstrates an ability to plot on behalf of genetic material. Her lithe and dexterous form, excellent for gathering, crafting, stealing. Her facial and musculature symmetry, indicates lack of parasites and strong immune system. Her beauty, as sexual selection, becomes its own tautological, self-reinforcing phenomenon, wherein beauty is attractive because beautiful children are attractive. And her fat deposits are all in the right place good for the creation of the brains of more genetic material, which are mostly made of fat. But at the same time, Carmen hoped that all these things were merely expressions of something else, that the deep structure of the universe rewarded this reciprocal altruism between consciousnesses, that as one traced the physical to the biological, to the psychological, to the spiritual, it was obvious no one description captured all of it, That there was the underlying abstract truth that two are better than one, that unification was primary in ontology, that all of metaphysics was love and strife, the evolutionary was just one level of description, a single-dimensional slice of a high-dimensional object. Regardless of its origin or ontological status, she really does feel different. Beyond the exchange of saliva and flesh and friction and cum and the pressing of our bodies and all that other truly excellent stuff, there were other, deeper things at work. From the exchanging of the species of fungi that live in our lungs from our breaths, the microbiome of our mouths and urinal canals, and in our eyes and hair and the colonies on our flesh. There was even the exchange of human cells, the development of microchimerism, wherein genetically different cells from other people are found throughout our own bodies. While cells are often thought of as this strict matrix, the bricks we are made of, actually organic cellular structure, is not like inorganic architecture at all. Cells migrate and move. The whole body is always shifting, a thing with its own currents and eddies and tides. And Carmen knows those cells with different DNA are taken up in our permeable bodies and end up in our brains as well as our bellies, our genitals and toes, our lips from kissing. We are destined to become a cellular chimera, or chimera, made out of our mothers and fathers and lovers and children. Monsters, all. After some yoga and then taking a shower, Carmen begins to do what she has done for the last two Saturdays, investigate the case as she thinks of it. First, she cuts up a banana and sets it in a bowl with cream and sprinkles brown sugar over it. And then she sits by her open window looking out at the street with her Moleskine notebook, occasionally taking banana slice bites, listening to the city sounds. Opening to a series of pages with names, times and locations on them, Carmen flicks past those to one titled Leeds. Alone with her thoughts, this notebook has felt both funny and dark and necessary all at once. But when Kirk was here, it suddenly seemed paranoid, ill-humoured, and vaguely pathetic, like she was a bored suburbanite concocting a fantasy about a neighbour. I'm skipping a little bit to avoid spoilers. All these things formed a set of conceptual points that she arranges and rearranges into different constellations, trying to make the outline into a shape she recognises. She enjoys doing this. After all, isn't the fundamental plot of a mystery identical to the fundamental plot of science? Distinguishing the true causal structure of a series of events? Untangling correlation and causation? Coming up with the simplest theory that explains as much as possible? all of these thoughts were accompanied by the remembrance fit of a trivia she recalls that the english word mystery comes from the greek word muen, to close one's mouth so what the novel kind of i mean i think one of the things that that passage illustrates is that or what the novel can do very easily is dive beneath the surface in a sort of literal way that you can't do in uh, in visual media i.e. beneath the surface of the outer appearance, the outer body, the skin, into the, um, you can go deeper into the layers, the organs, the um, down, uh, right down to the level of the kind of electrons and um, quarks. And you can also, you can get a very sophisticated and clear idea of The connections between things, the way in which, um, think thoughts don't or thoughts or phenomena don't just exist on their own, but they are always, um, woven into this kind of scheme of the person's consciousness. They're always, um, slotted in and connections are made with other things. And that, that is how they gain in meaning. I don't know if I'm expressing that very well.
1: No, I, I think you're. I think you're spot on. Um, you know what we see there is that you know Carmen is a is a kind of trained scientist, and she sees the world through this scientific worldview, right? And and that is a that is a very powerful thing, but it can also be like a like a dangerous thing, right? She's thinking there has to be something more than just our evolutionary attractiveness to one another. Um, and she knows that this fact that, you know, if you actually sample people's DNA, if you actually sample people's cells of their body, you'll find other people's cells from their lovers, from their mothers, from their children that are just like migrating and moving in your own body. And she doesn't find that reductive, right? She finds it really, Beautiful. Um, and I just hadn't I, I hadn't really seen that done. I mean, I think that the modern scientific worldview, yes, it can be very scary, but it can also be very beautiful. And um, and I, I think Carmen in particular has kind of a gorgeous, a relatively gorgeous view of reality. Like I, I, I she she's always kind of she she is, in a sense, the best scientist in the novel in that she's the most skeptical. She's she's a more she's maybe more of an incrementalist than Kirk. But she is she also has like a spiritual side um that is kind of looking looking for something more and trying to trying to kind of you know I'm 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 just incredibly you know joyous that that, that kind of come comes across there. But I do think that it's I you know I wish more novels held that sort of, some of that scientific worldview, because it's getting to be something you just can't ignore. Like we, like, like, frankly, if you go back and you read Jane Austen, you know, the one thing that you really do notice is that there is none of this, there is none of the contemporary scientific worldview in it. And science has become such a dominating cultural force that we need to find ways to talk about it, artistically to talk about it from the perspective of literature. And I guess, mm. you know, ultimately that's, that's what I was trying to do.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's um, I mean, it's a lack that people have um, have noticed ever since um, George Eliot, where she says, you know, the novel is fundamentally, a, it deals with human relationships. And of course your novel does too. There's a love story at the heart of this novel, but, It doesn't tell the other kind of love story. Oh, let me find that passage, actually. So this is the passage from Middlemarch that I was thinking about when I was reading your novel um, because, um, here we go, yes, because your novel is very much, um, it's not just the love story between the two characters, but it's a novel about about vocation. Mm. It's about, Kirk's vocation and Kirk's um, passion and um, to discover the truth about consciousness so it's a novel that is um, a, uh, also about a love of the intellectual life and uh, here's the passage that I'm thinking of from um, George Eliot's middle March um, and She is describing the young Dr. Tertius Lydgate. One vacation, a wet day sent him to the small home library to hunt once more for a book which might have some freshness for him. In vain, unless indeed he took down a dusty row of volumes with grey paperbacks and dingy labels, the volumes of an old cyclopedia which he had never disturbed. It would at least be a novelty to disturb them. They were on the high shelf, and he stood on a chair to get them down. But he opened the volume which he first took from the shelf. Somehow one is apt to read in a makeshift attitude, just where it might seem inconvenient to do so. The page he opened on was under the head of anatomy, and the first passage that drew his eyes was on the valves of the heart. He was not much acquainted with valves of any sort, but he knew that valve were folding doors. And through this crevice came a sudden light, startling him with his first vivid notion of finely adjusted mechanism in the human frame. A liberal education had, of course, left him free to read the indecent passages in the school classics, but beyond a general sense of secrecy and obscenity in connection with his internal structure, had left his imagination quite unbiased, so that for anything he knew, his brains lay in small bags at his temples And he had no more thought of representing to himself how his blood circulated than how paper served instead of gold. But the moment of vocation had come, and before he got down from his chair, the world was made new to him by a presentiment of endless processes filling the vast spaces planked out of his sight by that wordy ignorance which he had supposed to be knowledge. From that hour, Lydgate felt the growth of an intellectual passion. We are not afraid of telling over and over again how a man comes to fall in love with a woman and be wedded to her, or else be fatally parted from her. Is it due to excess of poetry or of stupidity that we are never weary of describing what King James called a woman's macdom and her fairness, never weary of listening to the twanging of the old troubadour strings, and are comparatively uninterested in that other kind of mactum and fairness, which must be wooed with industrious thought and patient renunciation of small desires. In the story of this passion, too, the development varies. Sometimes it is a glorious marriage, sometimes frustration and final parting. And not seldom the catastrophe is bound up with the other passion sung by the troubadours, For in the multitude of middle-aged men who go about their vocations in a daily course, determined for them much in the same way as the tie of their cravats, there is always a good number who once meant to shape their own deeds and alter the world a little. The story of their coming to be shapen after the average and fit to be packed by the gross is hardly ever told even in their consciousness. For perhaps their ardour in generous unpaid toil "'cooled as imperceptibly as the ardour of other youthful loves, "'till one day their earlier self walked like a ghost in its old home "'and made the new furniture ghastly. "'Nothing in the world more subtle than the process of their gradual change. "'In the beginning they inhaled it unknowingly. "'You and I may have sent some of our breath towards infecting them "'when we uttered our conforming falsities or drew our silly conclusions.' Or perhaps it came with the vibrations from a woman's glance. Lydgate did not mean to be one of those failures. And there was a better hope of him because his scientific interest soon took the form of professional enthusiasm. The conviction that the medical profession, as it might be, was the finest in the world, presenting the most perfect interchange between science and art, Offering the most direct alliance between intellectual conquest and the social good, so <laughs> I
1: love that. I love that. yeah, um, yeah you're you're absolutely right. I mean uh, I, th- that is a, a thing that I see a lot, which is that in in older novels, there is a much clearer sense of vocations. And again, I, I think that some of that and an interest in vocations, by the way, an interest in in, in, in work and in other fields, that are be, that it's, it's weird to say that they're not about human relationships, because they are about human relationships. Uh, they're just not about completely kind of colorless human relationships, un, untinged by any other facts about how the world functions. And if you go back and you read older novelists, they often will set an entire novel that's about a doctor, or, you know, I mean, the, the novel that I read. Over and over, when I was writing the Revelations, was Moby Dick. Uh, mm. I must have read it at least five times. And mm. you know, it, it is a novel about a vocation. It is a novel about whaling and the act of whaling. And the act of whaling is so intense that it is that it is it is appropriate for literature. Like when when you are whaling, you are hunting a creature whose heart is the size of a car. Right. And that is an insane and dramatic and almost metaphysical thing to do. And Melville treats the vocation and elevates it to, to literature and uses it to inform. So you know, obviously, I've, I'm I'm no Melville, but you know, I was deeply inspired by that sort of approach. And I think science fits that bill. I mean, Melville has a sentence, uh, to write a a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme, right? And I think there is enough in science to really service literature in a really weird way. I mean, a, a big part of the revelations is seeing the kind of things that scientists get up to, like building gigantic microscopes, cutting open the the heads of monkeys and lowering this massive microscope into a monkey's brain. And it's dark and it's weird and it's thematic. And I just felt that, that there's enough here in this vocation to, to serve as literature. So I, I love that you, that uh, you're right. I hadn't been thinking about Middlemarch and George Eliot in, in a long time in that way, but you're absolutely right that that crops up there.
0: Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I, um, really enjoy reading popular science books and I would highly recommend if anybody listening to this, um, is a literary type and hasn't yet done that, that you should. The best place to start, the, the place I always recommend starting is Richard Dawkins' book, The Ancestor's Tale, which is, um, just a very, very, uh, beautifully written eloquent, and as moving as any novel. But it's quite surprising that that kind of sense of wonder and awe that you can get from science isn't more often utilized within the novel. Because, again, the novel can, of course, do things that science can't do. So the novel can can make those things personal.
1: A- agreed. And it can also criticize. I mean, I think that that's, that's allowable, right? Like mm. I I do, you can criticize science and the practice of science and scientists all without dismissing, you know, all of science, like, you know, like, like some sort of, you know, it's all just postmodern power structures or something, right? You can legitimately engage artistically in science, even in a critical way. Um, And I think that that's fine. And I wish, and there's, there is some of that in the revelations, particularly around you know, the animal research, which is all, I mean, I should say, everything in the revelations is is real, at least in the sense, not in the sense of particular events, but in the sense of that is precisely how science works, how neuroscience is done. And, you know, all the animal research in it, which it shows a lot of, uh, is exactly how it, how it actually works. And some of it, you know, it, this isn't a book that's anti-animal research, but just showing it the way that it actually is, is I think startling to some people. Like I've heard that reaction. And I think mm-hmm. that that's fine. Like it's it's fine for literature to do things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Eric, is there anything I haven't asked you or given you a chance to say that you have wanted to say?
1: No, no. It's been an absolute pleasure. I have loved Talking to you, and I've loved hearing you read some passages. It's it's uh, it's been so fun, and you do such a good job of it.
0: Thank you. I love reading. I love reading um, authors' passages to them. Um, it's one of my favorite things.
1: It's a treat for the author as well.
0: Well, thank you so much, Eric. So I would highly recommend your novel to everyone, and I will put that and links to your other writing uh, into the show notes, and. Um, yeah uh what are you waiting for go read it have a wonderful week everyone
1: thank you so so much
0: thank you so much for listening to two for tea your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing your support means the world to me stay well stay happy and have a wonderful week